welcome to Life Without Walls with me, Caroline Drury. This is the podcast that celebrates life beyond the guardrails and shines a spotlight on stories from people who have walked the path of change. Life Without Walls is about how we navigate change, the role of creativity in that, and why how we approach change makes all the difference. I'm Caroline Drury, leadership and life coach, and every fortnight I'm interviewing a new person to hear their story of living a life without walls. Susanna Taylor has been at the forefront of the beauty and health industry for more than 20 years. Formerly the beauty and health editor of Vogue and Glamour, there are no trends or fads that Susanna hasn't witnessed. From eating like a cavewoman to exercising like an animal, fasting to cold water swimming, cryotherapy to facial massage, she's seen it all. Susanna started out in fashion, deciding to forge a career out of her love of fashion, attending Central St. Martin's School of Art, which led to an internship with a terrifying fashion journalist who would freak out if the froth was low on her cappuccino. This experience had Susanna running to the heady perfumed hills of beauty and landing a dream job on the launch of Condé Nast's Glamour, where she worked her way up to become beauty editor before moving to Vogue as beauty and health editor and then launching Get the Gloss in 2014 with Sarah Vine. She has written for everyone from The Telegraph to The Times, Grazia and New Magazine. And last month, Susanna launched her brand new publication, The Glow Gazette. It's an online newsletter for the modern midlifer about skin, soul and sanity. It's as much about glowing on the inside as it is about glowing from the outside because it's Susanna's core belief that radiance doesn't come from skincare alone. The light needs to be switched on inside. After 20 years in a business more used to makeovers than meditation, three key things sparked this desire to return to feeling more human. Having her third baby in her early 40s, the pandemic, and the re-evaluation at the crossroads of midlife that led her to focus on what's helping people navigate this tricky time. Now, I first remember reading Susanna's column in Glamour when it launched in 2001. I was hooked. I would buy the magazine monthly, living in London in my 20s, and I loved it. When she moved to Vogue, I moved my readership with her. And so it seems to me like one of life's really serendipitous moments that I should come to end up chatting with her on Instagram earlier this year and discovering a shared outlook on many parts of life. Susanna is one of the warmest, kindest, most creative humans, and I always look forward to our chats. I am absolutely thrilled that she said yes to coming on the podcast. Susanna Taylor, a very warm welcome, and thank you so much for coming on Life Without Walls. Thank you so much for having me. That's such an amazing intro. I'm not sure I live up to it, but anyway, thank well, you very much. You will. And it's such a fantastic story. So your career sounds incredibly glamorous and I know it's highly competitive to get into. So I want to start by asking, how did you get into the world of magazine journalism? Well, I was, um, I was one of those people. I mean, I'm not sure there are many people that know what they want to do when they are 12. But I, when I was about 12, I, want, I said to my mum, I want to be uh, an editor and I want to work at Vogue. That's, that's what I said. I was obsessed oh, wow. by fashion and um, obsessed with things, arty and magazines and 
you know, reading and publications. And I sort of made it my mission. Um, at 16, I remember in the holidays, I went to do work experience at Vogue. And those were sort of in the days where work experience was really not, you know, it wasn't something that everyone did all the time. There weren't yeah. such things as internships. I just sort of rocked up and did work experience. Um, but then I went to St. Martin's and then when I left, I, well, I was skint. And so I had to do lots of temping, which I hated because I'd find mm. myself behind sort of corporate bank desks in the city and things. But behind the scenes, I was, you know, desperately trying to get into the magazine world. And I was also doing work experience everywhere from, um, I remember working with Hilary Alexander, who um, sadly passed away recently, um, on the Telegraph fashion desk. And I had, to, I remember, I remember having to take her dry cleaning and think, I used to have to do like quite menial jobs that you wouldn't do now. Um, Hilary Alexander, what else? I did, um, I did work experience on the Evening Standard, which was great. And I first byline on the Evening Standard. So that was really exciting for me. Mm-hmm. And then somehow I managed to land a job for not very much money. It was £12,000 a year on this, on this magazine called Scene Magazine. And it was a bit of an, it was an avant-garde. It wasn't like mainstream. It was an avant-garde fashion magazine. And I, I, it was, sorry, I'll start again. It was an avant-garde fashion magazine. And I basically got a job there and I wasn't paid very well at all. And they had recently fired their whole, a lot of their staff. And they got rid of their beauty editor. And they said to me, I know you want to do fashion, but would you do beauty? And I was a massive beauty junkie. So I just said 100% yes. And even though it wasn't the publication that I really wanted to work on, it wasn't quite me. I'm so glad that I took that job. And I was doing sort of, I was put in charge of different shoots and things like that and writing articles. And it was also at the time where the internet was suddenly starting to be a a real thing. Mm -hmm. And they were wanting to take this magazine online. Looking back, they had no idea what they were doing. They had these like massive servers and they had no idea what they were doing. And I'm not sure it actually ever launched online, but I, it was my first foray into online. You know, when we first got a page up online, it was just like, wow, this is online. You know, this was a thing. Um, And then after about sort of eight months, a friend of mine there who worked in fashion, Howell, he had a very good friend who worked at Condé Nast. And he said, Suze, there's this um, magazine launching at Condé Nast. It's called Glamour. You should apply. Because it became quite obvious that what we were doing, was maybe there was very limited budget and it might not last much longer. So, um, So I applied. And I got the job and the rest from there really is sort of history. Um, I could not believe, I remember the day that I landed that job at Glamour and they called me and said, you've got the job. And at that time I was sat on the front desk of Scene Magazine because we were all kind of hands to the pump and they, and we were all rotating people to sit on the front desk because they didn't have a receptionist. <laughs> and I was sat on the front desk and they called me 
I literally just left the desk and went walking through Soho. I just couldn't, I, I couldn't believe it. The feeling of euphoria that I'd got this like really quite big job at Condé yeah. Nast was, it was not lost on me. It, it's amazing, amazing story. Tell us a bit what it was like to work on such a huge launch with editor Joe Elvin for uh, On Glamour. It was pretty terrifying, but I think really at the time I sort of took it in my stride. You know, when you're, I was 24, I think, and, you know, you're sort of full of confidence, you know, out straight out of St. Martin's. And Joe, I found Joe to begin with, she, I mean, she's amazing, but I found her a little bit terrifying. She's very direct and very brilliant and very experienced. I felt a bit sort of slightly under-experienced, but I knew that, I had it in me to do the job, mm-hmm. but it was, it was quite pressured. I could feel, I could sense the pressure on Joe to re- create this incredible mm. new magazine. And the whole idea of it being a little magazine was this brand new concept. And so it was actually though mm. so exciting. And immediately, almost within a couple of months after it launched, it went in as the um, best-selling magazine mm. in the UK. And so we were all constantly on this incredible high. And Joe was an amazing boss and kept us, you know, really sort of inspired us all the whole time and kept us all in check. But at the same time, I had a lot of freedom. So my days at Glamour were probably, I think, some of the best, most exciting days of my whole life so far. I mean, I was given sort of, autonomy to direct shoots in New York. I was flying around the world. I did a shoot, um, I did a shoot in the Caribbean. I did a shoot in Brazil. I did uh, um, many shoots in New York. I loved spending time in New York. And I was literally just on my own, walking into a room full of strangers and directing everything. And I was only 24, 25. And we had a lot of freedom, but we also knew from Joe that we had to deliver. We, we had we had briefs and we had to deliver on them and so it was really hard work but it was in, it was incredible time yeah actually. yeah and that's amazing isn't it and that's that sort of arrogance of youth almost that gives us a kind of uh, the opportunity to really excel but it was so electrifying it like I said in my intro it was so exciting when the next edition landed and like you say that very small format and just it felt really fresh um and it was really fun to read at that point living living in London and um so from that mega high and when you were giving so much responsibility you then moved on to Vogue which you know as their beauty and health editor and like you say it's just this sort of stratospheric rise was that a dream come true or was that what did that sort of land in your lap what happened I mean, it was a dream come true because, my, as I said, when I was 12, I said to my mum, I want to work at Vogue. Yeah. And so it was a dream come true. But um, the beauty director, I remember Anna, her name is Anna Marie Solovey, who I adore and who everyone adores in our industry. And she's incredible. She became the beauty director. And I remember thinking... I need to apply for a position under her. So she, she was more senior to me and I, and I need to apply. And so I did, I just wrote to her. And, and cause I think I could sort of see from afar that the structure mm-hmm. of that department was going to be restructured. 
And I thought, mm, I wonder if they need a beauty editor. So I applied. It was quite a long process. I had to, I had to come up with sort of ideas for tons of issues of the beauty in Vogue. And I remember doing it over Christmas once. And um, I couldn't, I, yeah, couldn't believe it when I got the job. But um, but it was also it was hugely exciting. I, everyone always says to me, it's the one question people say is, what was it like to work at Vogue? Yeah. And I always say, you know, you think from AbFab that it's this whole kind of AbFab crazy world. But the, gone are those days. And when I was there, those days weren't there. You know, people aren't yeah. drinking a bottle of wine in their office or, you know, smoking fags out the window that was all gone it you know it's a business it's very structured and that was what was very different about Vogue to Glamour it felt a lot more structured it felt a bit like the much bigger much more sophisticated sister mm -hmm. of Glamour and she sort of had her head together a bit more and with that I felt that there was a lot more sort of red tape um it wasn't I, I loved working at Vogue but it didn't have the creative to free I actually had at Glamour and okay. um, whilst obviously you get to work with incredible influential makeup artists hairdressers stylists you know I I felt a little bit creatively stifled if I'm completely mm. honest mm. Um, and so um, I stayed there for about I think it was about four years and then I got pregnant around sort of 31 with my first daughter mm. and then I and when I left the office to go on maternity leave, I sort of felt that I probably wouldn't go back. Yeah. I just felt like I really wanted to do my own thing and sing my own song. Yeah. But I mean, it was, it was an incredible time there and I worked with the most insanely talented people. Yeah. And I never forget the first time I walked into the art room and they have basically a whole issue of the magazine and they, they still do up on the wall. So basically there are these mini images of all the pages. So you can see the entire magazine mapped out. And, you know, it was photography of all the world's most famous photographers and all the top models. And I, you know, I just couldn't believe I was there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, incredible. It's amazing, isn't it? That story of working, I mean, almost like a startup vibe with Glamour, you know, with kind of like just throw everything at it, have the budget, just go for it. And then going into a much more established um, business or magazine in this case and where you've got the absolute top talent and being able to carve your career winding both those paths and knowing what you enjoy about one and the other um, is is part of what has you know led you to be so knowledgeable in in your area now but I know it's not all rosy and uh, we referenced the boss that freaked out about the cappuccino froth. It's a highly volatile competitive industry um, where there are many downs as well as ups. <clears throat> and I wonder if you'd share a little about how you navigated that tension, that stress at that point in your, in your life, in your 20s. Yeah, well, there was times in my 20s, I mean, this wouldn't happen now, where... Some uh, some people. I'm quite a sensitive. Oh, sorry, I'll start again. Um, so I'm quite a sensitive person, and what really uh, struck me in my twenties was suddenly being thrown into sort of environments with 
some quite difficult people sometimes to yeah. work with. <clears throat> I don't mean like on a, you know, the, the people immediately sort of surrounding me. Everyone was great on our teams and things like that. But sometimes there were people, like when I was doing work experience, I never forget, there was this woman who just would not stop calling me thingy. If I saw her again, honestly, and she, and I used to go home and I used to cry and I used to cry to my husband and because I was very junior, you don't know how to, yeah. you don't know how to deal with that sort of behavior. Yeah, and you don't know if you should, you might think, mm. yeah, you don't know if you should because you think you might get fired or something. If you, if, right, you know, now I would say like, stop, do not mm. call me that. But, you know, and then there was an, one girl in particular I remember working with uh, who was in one of the offices I worked with. And she was quite, just not very nice to me. And I, that was something new to me. That was something really new, you know, people and their different characters and how you navigate that and mm. how some people can be quite mean for no reason at all. Yeah. Um, and... You know, I'm very sensitive. So I think that's something that I've had to learn to deal with in life, actually, is, you know, I'm, I'm never nasty to people. Or, and I found that quite a bizarre thing. You know, how, why would somebody be rude to me for no reason? Mm. There was a lady actually at Vogue. And whenever, there was one lady, and whenever I spoke, she slightly put me down. I, and I always remember her. And I, I, I you know, it used to always shock me. Because I'd always go out of my way to be pleasant and polite to people. I just couldn't understand it. Mm, yeah, you can you um, get a lot of like, sorry, go on. Yeah, that's something I've really had to sort of learn to deal with in life is that it's not about you. It's about their own insecurities about, about yeah. related to you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and these microaggressions that get played out in the workplace can really chip away at people's confidence, chip away at their happiness levels their contentedness levels with their job and if they're not managed and obviously you know it was a different time then in the 90s to now but it still plays out now and I think that point that you make of speaking up for yourself and finding who you can speak to obviously it's easier when you're in a bigger organization when you're in a small organization without HR sometimes there isn't anywhere to go and then it's yeah. it's deciding what you want to put up with but it's a very hard line that people do still walk with how do they progress their career maintain boundaries and deal with people who uh with toxic workplaces that don't always feel safe um yeah. and it's yeah because um, i didn't want to i didn't want to stick my head above the parapet as it were because yeah. you don't want to be seen like a, a young upstart yeah. who's um being rude back to the senior person yeah. who constantly whenever I send things she's she sort of just shut me down yeah and yeah. I and, but at the same time inside you're like what this mm. is so against my morals and the way I behave mm. um but I think if I was to give people advice on that now I would say you know be strong but mm. you know be nice so please don't talk to me like that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So maintain, yeah, maintain those boundaries, but in a polite way, yeah. and uh, and exactly. see what happens. Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting. The earlier in the conversation, you were talking about that shift from print to digital, and I remember that also. I was working in publishing at the time, um, and and you know how things were were really changing. 
And what we then saw in the last decade, in the middle of the last decade, was this shift to new influences on social media. And I know it's something that we've talked about because we're starting to see that the tide is shifting back as a result of living in a world with fake news, Instagram filters, this get rich quick ethos. Um, mm. People are starting to seek out an older school style of journalism again, I think. And, and I wonder if you could talk a bit about this and to what extent it perhaps signs to a backlash against the fly-by-night trends that we've seen over the last eight years or so. Yeah, well, I think um, the dawn of social media suddenly made this, like, instant sort of look-at-me um, fame, something that everyone thought they could get on board with. Yeah. Um, and, you know, influencers have been getting paid hundreds of thousands of pounds for posts. And, um, and we've all been looking at it. And it's a very visual thing, isn't it? Especially Instagram. A very visual, very instant hit yeah. uh, of gratification. I say gratification, but also, you know, it's ruining a lot of people's mental yeah. health. Gratification. Yeah. I think there's a lot. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of, a lot of different things at play. But I think... One of the biggest things at the moment is people are distrusting the influencer in um, quotation marks or the, the, the old style of influencer for just being famous, for just being famous. Yeah. And I think people are sort of calling that out mm. in a way. And, you know, because I've always found it really bizarre that somebody from, say, Made in Chelsea has a blue tick and you know, a million followers. And I've tried a million times to get a blue tick. And I, they, they just will not give me one. And, you know, and I've been working in sort of beauty and well-being, I mean, especially well-being now, for so long. And I've hard grafted, you know, yeah. and it's just, it's all, it's all totally screwed up. Yeah. But I think also the fact that people are getting paid a lot for stuff has made it feel very um, ungenuine. Mm -hmm. So people are sort of second guessing what they're seeing and I think people don't really believe as much in the influence because they can sort of see through it they can see through the people are getting paid and I think because of all these things and also people are now really worried about you know, people with their perfect abs and their perfect lives and what this is doing to um, the mental health of us and our kids and so all of this is slightly it's well not slightly it's very much beginning to rock yeah, yeah. and so thankfully now there's a far more honest conversation coming through and I think that's fantastic I mean I've noticed um particular sort of fitness influences for example have really pivoted and now they're talking whereas it used to be about their abs and their workout and what they eat every day that's gone and they're talking about real conversations they're talking about their mental health they're talking about how they're struggling having a baby and it needs to be far more real mm. um, and I think people who are also very experienced writers and journalists mm. and who do have credentials and you know doctors and in incredibly you know well-read people are actually sort of slightly coming more to the fore yeah. um, as people who really do know what they're talking about, because everyone used to be able to call themselves um, a wellness expert, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. it, this is, I'm talking about in my world. Yeah. Um, 
And then people started to question it, started to say, but they have no credentials. Yeah. And so that's all become a bit rocky. And so now the people with the credentials are coming through. Yeah. Um, and people with real opinions and real, um, you know, talent in writing, for example, Substack's becoming a really big thing, which is a, you know, a newsletter platform. Yeah. And, and people are moving slightly away from the quick hit and actually more into intelligent conversations. Yeah, which yeah is into lo yeah, long, longer, more, um, more in-depth content. And I think the point there is that people are wising up to knowing they need to do their research. It's like, who is it that you're getting your information from? You know, are they uh, certified? Are they qualified? Are they experienced? Um, and yeah. are they being paid to plug the thing that they're plugging? Um, yeah. So Life Without Walls, you know, a lot of the audience here are grappling with change. Um, I know you've experienced a huge amount of change in your career, as you've described it, but then particularly in your 40s when um, from having your uh, third baby to all that change in your professional life, what opportunities do you think that change is bringing to your life that couldn't have happened otherwise? I think um, I've sort of got a whole new perspective actually, suddenly at uh, 47, that is my age. Um, a couple of years ago, um, I was writing a column for you, Maggie, magazine yeah. and it very sadly it got axed mm. and I took that quite hard um yeah sorry I'll say that again very sadly it got axed and I I didn't take it that well if I'm totally honest with you mm. I, I was absolutely gutted so because I'm quite used to putting myself out there and sort of always doing the very best I can and mm. the, a new editor came in after the um, wonderful Joe Elvin, and she basically axed my column. And obviously, I know it was for professional reasons, but it's very hard to take that that kind of thing. So that was a bit of a learning curve for me. And but I've had to therefore think of what to do next. So it's given me a whole sort of new perspective on what I'm going to do, where I'm going to go, and also maybe my value within this mm -hmm. um, industry and what I've learned up until this point. So that's very exciting for me. Um, yeah. And it's like ex expanding the way I think because instead of relying on, you know, a salary, well, it wasn't really a salary. It was like a freelance wage. Yeah. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm having to really sort of pivot and think about um, how I personally can make money and also, can I think bigger than actually how I was thinking before? Are there a million other ways of things that I can do? And actually, the answer to that is probably yes. Um, so I've, I feel like I've been quite limited, maybe, in some of my beliefs. And, you know, watch this space, yeah. basically. Yeah, amazing. Because it's it pushed you out of your comfort zone, didn't it? From having a regular, like I said, this is a kind of regular freelance gig that you could rely on to um, to not having that, but also then thinking in a much more entrepreneurial way around this, you know, these new opportunities are limitless and what do they look like? And you, see, you, you told me something very poignant your husband had said to you, which was, do what makes you happy. 
And why can't you make money doing that? And I think that really mirrors certainly why a lot of people come to see me for coaching and that point we get to in midlife. So I wonder what has following your heart meant for you when it comes to setting up the Glow Gazette, your new online newsletter? Well, I think I've had to, I've had to really think about what's very important to me mm. and the things that I really love. Um, and work-wise, I think what I really love is writing and, and journalism and also being creative. And I just thought, can't I do all of this and put it into a newsletter? I, I've, I feel I've always been quite, you know, it's always been my thing to be able to sort of tap into the way sort of people are feeling. And I feel... Um, at the moment, people are incredibly fraught and, you know, we're, we're in a very hectic, strange time post-COVID and there is so much worry and there's a lot of worry over money and business mm. and mortgage rates are sky high. And, mm. and I felt that, I feel that people need help. Mm. And with my sort of background, I... I was basically made me think about ways that I can help and considering I'm currently 47 so I am midlife fully perimenopausal mm -hmm. and I have noticed over the last sort of seven years ever since 40 that this is the time really when the wheels come off yeah. so you know for, ev for every part of us so you know people are slightly directionless um, mm -hmm you know, our neck suddenly falls off down to our knees. You know, we have so much, you know, we go gray overnight. We're going through the menopause. There's so much happening. So my newsletter is all about uh, women at midlife. Mm. And it's, as you said, it's about skin, soul mm. and sanity. Mm. Um, you know, there is a bit of humor in it because mm. it's all about the sisterhood. It's all about looking after other women. And I am passionate about that. Yeah, yeah. So inspiring. I absolutely love it. And one of my favourite sections in uh, Glow Gazette is called Sense and Sensitivity, which you came up with. And it's something that you describe as being about getting back to being more human. Um, tell us a little bit about that, because I know you're very passionate about it, why it's so important and where the inspiration came from for that. Well, I really think that whilst we are fully connected digitally around the world you know you can buy something in australia in a second yeah it's um it's no secret that we're very unconnected it's making us more and more unconnected in a human sense and we've never been more disconnected in fact mm -hmm. and i think people are very lonely because mm -hmm. they're living on these um phones but actually not making real connections mm -hmm. and um, sense and sensitivity is about getting back to feeling more human mm -hmm. in this over digitalized world mm -hmm. um, and so every month I'm going to take people through the five senses you know, mm -hmm. see hear feel taste and touch no see hear feel smell and touch mm -hmm. and I'm going to recommend things that people can do. Um, it might be like a meditation app. It might be a playlist or it might be, um, you know, something they can do in their skincare regime. It might be somewhere to go, something to see. 
that will get us back to feeling what is innately more human. Because yeah. um, I feel that we're spending so much time on these phones and with the dawn of AI, mm. you know, I'm really worried, actually. Mm. It's a real concern of mine what is going to happen Mm, you know in the yeah. future and how we're going to be living and i'm i really feel that this mental health crisis that we're currently in as well is being fully fueled sorry it's being fully fueled by mm. our insatiable desire for everything digital mm, mm, yeah absolutely and that disconnect on top of a time when we were disconnected from each other during the pandemic and um you know we're going through such a time of change, as you point to. Um, if people are going through change, that you, you've, you've touched on that point of being connected. But if other people are going through change right now and struggling with it, grappling with it, what would you say to them? What advice would you give them from, you know, everything that you see right now and from the experiences that you've had? I would say hold on because I think um, change is inevitable for everyone and I think mm. to know that other people go through a lot of change all the time is really important mm -hmm. you know even the, the people that you think are the most you know famous or flawless and mm. or never have an issue they would definitely have had times in their lives mm. or they'll have times in the future mm. where big things happen that really, you know, shift you to the core. Mm. Um, and I so I think, hold on, know that, you know, change is inevitable in our lives. Um, also, I would say, look for your inner self. Like, what is your inner thought process or your inner like love what do you love doing where and where does that lead you to where do you want where do you want to go and in there as well there is an inner steeliness I think we've all got this inner steeliness that goes hand in hand with that sort of direction it's yeah. like this okay this is where I want to go this is aligned with me this is, no matter what it is if it's if you're going through divorce whether you're going through um, a career change or, or whatever it is something difficult with your kids um, I think your heart leads you to the right place yeah. eventually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I would say, actually, also remember that really good things can come from change, mm. actually can be better than you ever yeah. imagined. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. So glow is a brilliant concept. This idea, this need to get back to being human, like you, you say, you know, finding that inner, inner point of connection. Tell us, how can people get involved with GLOW? How can they sign up? And what sort of thing have you got coming up for subscribers? So if you follow me on Instagram, which is at Susanna Taylor underscore, Susanna with S-U-S -S and then an H at the end, um, then you... Can I say that again? Okay. If you follow me on Instagram, which is at Susanna Taylor underscore then if you go to my bio you can sign up to my newsletter which is going to drop every month at the beginning of every month in your inbox and i've got loads of amazing things coming up and i'm going to be starting a series this is probably the um the most exciting thing i'm going to be starting a series with really fantastic people 
that can help us at midlife. I'm going to be starting to do online Zoom sessions. Um, the first one is about how to modernise your makeup bag. And then I'm going to talk about uh, the menopause. I'm going to bring in amazing experts. And we're going to go through all the different elements of the menopause from physically to psychologically what's happening and um, how we can how we can help ourselves. Okay, amazing, amazing. So, Susanna, as always, I've loved talking to you. I've loved hearing your story, particularly of you following your heart, listening to your intuition and really honouring who you are at each stage of your life's journey. And I would say never settling for second best. It's uplifting, it's heartening, it's encouraging. And I know that it will have inspired many people listening here today. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us on Life Without Walls. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.